Hello, I am Camille Chambineau, and you are listening to The Next Page, the podcast of the United Nations Library Geneva, where we aim to advance the conversation on multilateralism. I am very happy to introduce this new episode of our conversation series. We had the pleasure to receive Jayatma Wickermanayake here at the UN Library Geneva, and our director, Francesco Pisano, sat down with her for a conversation on young woman leadership. Jayanma Wilkemanayaka is the United Nations Secretary General's Envoy on Youth. She was appointed in 2017. And in this conversation, she shares her thoughts on leadership from the perspective of a young woman, talking not only about models and aspirations, but also the reality of the workplace and obstacles that may arise. You will also understand more on her work as the Envoy on Youth to strengthen the relations between the work of the UN and youth globally, especially since the launch of the youth strategy in 2018. If you want to know more about this, do not forget to check the episode's description or to reach out to her on Twitter at UN Youth Envoy. And now, on to the conversation. Enjoy! Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined in the studio of The Next Page, our podcast, by UN Secretary General's Envoy on Youth, Jayatma Wikamanayaka, who is here for important meetings in Geneva, and she's honoring us with her presence today. Welcome on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure. So before we go into this discussion, on youth, leadership, young women in leadership positions like you. Tell our audience a little bit about you and how you came to be the Youth Envoy in 2017. Yes, so as you said, my name is Jayatma Vikramanayaka and I am from Sri Lanka. I am now 29 years old, but I was appointed when I was 26 years old. Before being appointed as the Secretary General in Moyon Youth, I was quite active in the youth development, youth leadership space in my home country, Sri Lanka, across, of course, a wide variety of topics, some of that being um, the inclusion of young women in politics, young people in politics, um, civic and political participation, but also post-conflict reconciliation reconciliation in in my country. If I sort of go back uh, so many years, I grew up in a war. I was born to a war and 19 years of my life, I lived with the fear of war. So my activism or sort of my interest in sort of working on peace and working to see what as a young person I can do to help improve the situation of my country started when I was really small. When I was 13 years old, I wrote a poem to a newspaper about um, how the country should stop the war and how we should all live in peace. And of course, in a very naive way, you know, dreaming about a peaceful country where like when we go to school, we don't have to worry about bombs or shootings or just really trying to live a life of a normal child. 
and then it started from there and then my parents really encouraged that a lot um so i kept writing short stories poems in my native language sinhalese and that's kind of sort of grew in me um and throughout school throughout university i was also then active in youth clubs youth networks youth councils student political organizations and really tried to channel my aspirations for a better future through these different channels so uh, i was a part of the national youth parliament um, as a senator in sri lanka and i was also um, selected as the first youth delegate from sri lanka to the un and across that time i also founded a youth organization with uh, three of my friends it's called hashtag #generation so in 2014 2015 we mobilized a large number of young people especially using social media to be active in their communities and to be active in political life we conducted workshops and trainings for young women from different political parties who were interested in running for office through a project called Sri Lanka Youth for Democracy i also convened a youth platform where the 16 different political parties in sri lanka and their youth wings came together and sort of um, started debating dialoguing and developing common propositions for um, the future of the country as young young politicians so this was most of the work that i was doing before and then when secretary general guterres uh, announced that he will appoint a new youth envoy a number of youth organizations nominated me uh, especially also due to the international and regional work that i've been doing in this topic so since then it's been a very interesting and exciting journey what motivated you to join the un it's the experience of being a youth representative or is it an, an image that you had Uh, of the UN being an actor in multilateralism that you wanted to join to uphold your the causes you were already working for it's very interesting because when i grew up and when i was in high school or even in university my job didn't even exist so it's i think a very interesting tr- sort of um example and an experience of how the needs and the priorities of our world is also changing so rapidly and changing so fast and sometimes we can't really have a set career path set in our minds from the beginning because everything just changes so rapidly but what motivated me to take up this position really is that at the community level in my country at the national level in my country i was able to through very concrete projects through engaging in the national youth policy development in sri lanka able to bring about some visible changes and i believe that if i take up this position then i could also instill that change at a much more bigger global scale and that definitely is what motivated uh, me to take up this job but then when i started in the united nations i also started understanding more the impact that the organization has not only in the lives of young people and not only in the thematic areas like peace and security and climate change and other topics that i am personally interested in but also in a multitude of issues and the crucial role that the united nations plays in bringing all that together so actually since i started in this job sort of my attitude and my motivation towards the multilateral system has also been growing and i think i've also been able to find my own space in that and to find how through my mandate and through mobilizing young people we can actually create a generation or inspire a generation of young people who believe in multilateralism who support in multilateralism 
And this is very important. I would like also to take this opportunity you know, for, for our audience to talk about young women like you in leadership position. There is no doubt you're in a leadership position. You're doing work at the global level. And many of our listeners are young women like you or younger at this point. They, they are now where you were when you were 22, engaging on multilateral issues in your country. And they may be wondering how hard it is. So what were the obstacles that you found on your path? What was the gap between the reality you met in the workplace when you started touring the world and the perception, the idea that you had of that kind of job? I think it's it's very easy to generalize and say like these are the challenges of youth or these are the challenges of young women. But I think being young, of course, it becomes a big barrier and big obstacle when you work also for a bureaucratic, formal, very protocol-oriented organization like the United Nations. And then being a young woman is also then adds another level of barriers because of your gender. But being a young woman of color is also sort of a third barrier and an obstacle that usually comes in my way when I do my work. But I think sort of being groomed as a leader or being uh, developing the skills that you need to be a leader is not something that you learn in school or it's not a course that you take in a university. It's, I think, since you are very small, the opportunities, the experiences that you are exposed to. So I'm the oldest of a family of three girls. Um, So I think I had to practice leadership from a very young age. When my parents were out, we didn't have money to, you know, recruit uh, people to support them, like nannies. So I had to take care of my younger siblings and be responsible when my parents were away. And then my parents, even though we we grew up in a very patriarchal society, um, never sort of assigned us to gender specific roles so like my parents never said like you're a girl so you need to learn how to cook or you need to learn how to sew but if that's what you're interested in that then you can do it but if not you are free to do anything else that a boy would do so I think even though my parents are not very highly educated I think that kind of freedom and the empowerment that they really gave me and also my sisters has really resulted in who we have become today so At the same time, I've seen how some of the girls that I grew up with in the village where I grew up in Sri Lanka and also who I went to school with sort of ended up uh, being married at a very young age or being having um, now some of them have two, three children without really being able to realize their fullest potential because uh, they didn't have access to those opportunities. But then, you know, you overcome all these kinds of opportunities. I was very lucky to be born in a country where there is free education and free health care. So I could get a complete quality education in school and in university. And then I was also lucky to have these opportunities like the youth parliament or the youth delegate program that really helped build my profile for me to be able to be a choose like suitable candidate for a position like this and then once you you know overcome all those challenges and then you come to your job to the place of work and then again you start facing these different levels of multiple barriers like I still remember the very first day when I went up to the 38th floor in the UN headquarters to meet the secretary general I was walking in with like another number of USGs and ASGs and they only stopped me, the security at the entrance. And this, where are you going? 
and I said, I'm going to meet the Secretary General. Do you have a meeting? Um, I said, yes. And can I see your ID? So I had to like, even though everyone else before me moved on, I had to show my ID and prove the case uh, that I'm actually the envoy on use and that I work with the Secretary General directly. What did you think right then? This called to your mind experiences you had previously how did you react? I think previously I had not experienced that much because I always was working with young people. Like in the organization that I built, we were managing our own peers. So the leadership of our organization was young people like me or places that I worked in, people would already know me for who I am. But the United Nations and the this was a completely new field and a new space. So a lot of these challenges, I think I at least started noticing after I assumed my job and the position at the UN. There was also one of these incidents where I was supposed to meet with the minister for a bilateral meeting, but my staff stepped out to get me some water. So I was the only person inside the room. And then the minister's assistant came into the room and he asked me, oh, so where's the envoy? <laughs> um, so this kind of, you know, like um, stereotypes, when people think it is an envoy, people think it is usually older person, mostly maybe a man, probably like a man in a suit. And then when when they see like a young woman in a sari, they automatically think, oh, maybe we're in the wrong room or this is the wrong person. So, so I think these kind of uh, stereotypes that I've sort of encountered with has also made me realize how much more that needs to be done to actually change not just young women and girls' attitudes towards leadership, but others' attitudes towards young women and girls being in leadership as well. Exactly. Let's stay a little bit on this topic. You know, it is said that leadership is better caught than taught. And so let's talk a little bit about roles and behaviors and models for you. What are the roles and behaviors that have inspired you during your still young career, but pretty well formed because you really have a national career, you have a global career now with the UN, so you're very well placed actually to advise those in our audience who would like to become leaders or maybe they are leaders and they don't even fully realize it. So what are the inspiring behaviors and which ones are turns off to you? For me, what inspires is when leaders actually be themselves. I think a lot of the times the kind of models that we have or the kind of qualities that we look for in a leader is like this charisma and sort of always being very resilient and very stoic sometimes and at least not showing that they're affected by what's going on around them. But I think that's not true. And I think that is people just putting up a different face to just show that they are a stronger leader but I think leadership is leadership is in every one of us I think the true power of leadership lies in what makes you a human so for an example someone I really really like watching very closely is Jacinda Ardern the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I can relate very much to her because she's very young and she's a woman, she's a young mother. But also, for an example, during the, the Christchurch um, attacks and very recently uh, what happened in New Zealand, the way that she's able to connect with people at an emotional level, at a human level, not being afraid to you know, cry in public, laugh in public, hug people and just 
show that being a leader does not mean that you completely de- detach from your emotions and from people but what makes you a better leader is the more you connect with the people that you're trying to serve so for me the good leadership models or the more leadership models that inspire me really are people that are sort of true to themselves and true to the people um, who are following them as leaders it appears the leadership itself the way we perceive it as humans and the way we practice it is almost transitioning for instance i'm i'm a i'm a male over 50 and i'm very aware that uh, the classical model of leadership would have those typical male traits of uh, taking decisions very rapidly standing by one's decisions um showing no you know hesitation things like that but what is really happening in the leadership landscape both in the private sector and to a lesser degree perhaps but still it is happening in the in the international public sector is that those traits are actually not definite um winners mm-hmm. and we are looking at other traits a few of them you were mentioning just now and so it appears that there is a transition from a very masculine set which you could still find even in the minds of women yeah. so what are your thoughts on this transition because you must feel it yourself as a as a young woman leader i mean i think you're very right and i've i've met women who had to change their personalities in order to fit to a model of a male leader right. so to sort of change the way they manage the change the way they lead just because they wanted to be more recognized as a leader and they thought the the only way to do this is behave more like a man and and i mean that's not their fault because it's also what the stereotypes around you creates right and there was this very interesting statistic in a recent study that plan international did with the gina davis institute for media and they they conducted um, a survey with 10000 girls i think across 19 countries 70% of them 76% of the girls said they want to become leaders in the future but 60% of them said then the girls will have to do more work and work harder than boys to actually become leaders so this sort of sentiment as you said of like very masculine very um one set of um category or model of leaders is still very much rooted in our society you can see this when there are elections in countries either from europe to in my own country sri lanka but still as you're saying there's also a new trend and a new wave of new leaders who are coming and really challenging that status quo and challenging that model and saying no we are not going to fit to that model we are going to just be ourselves and invent a new model of leading and leadership and for me that's what's what's really interesting is looking at the the new um prime minister of finland sana martin or jacinda ardern or the prime minister of iceland all of these are amazing young women that i've had the pleasure and the opportunity to also work in this capacity all of them is really not also trying to be the voice of the voiceless or trying to be experts in areas that they are not experts in but really elbowing out and creating space and taking a step back and actually letting other people who are experts of these their own stories to tell those stories and to lead i also saw this trait um, in greta thunberg just um, at the cop 25 when she was invited to speak she actually stepped back and she let 
a group of indigenous young leaders come to the stage and take her speaking time and take her spotlight so you also see in this generation of millennials and gen z a very strong sense of solidarity where we actually want to move forward as a generation we know that generations before us led in a really bad way and created so many problems for us to solve and the only way that we can solve those problems is only if we work together mary robinson um, puts this very nicely she says a lot of the big issues that we face today like climate change global refugee crisis peace and security these are man made problems that need feminist solutions i like that <laughs> we talked about models let's talk about practice now so that our audience you know gets a sense of what everyone out there can do uh, to lead and lead in the future so practice you said it uh, there are so many young leaders out there it may be also because our planet has the youngest average age ever known basically and so yeah. we have a massive quantity of youth around the planet and it's inevitable that from there will emerge the leadership of our next sort of speak phase but what are really the spaces for you to practice leadership today most of the key positions the vast majority of them are still occupied if i can use that term by people from the previous generation and you said it before very clearly they made a mess of so many things um human and non-human also also talking about nature and environment and climate so in your own experience as a youth and boy and also as a as a young person engaged in your own country how do you assess this space is there enough space to try your leadership skills also for the others what could be done in the un to improve that space so first of all if you if we look at outside the un and outside our governments but as you said governments are changing now too and leadership of um, for countries are also now shifting to to a different generation starting from from europe and other places but if you look at the science sector scientists um, the leading scientists in the world today um, the their very recent nobel peace prize winners the very recent nobel economic prize winners the age range or the average age has tremendously gone down malala yousafzai um nadia murad 16 year old 23 year old um these generation of young people are really instigating change within their own sectors if you look at the technology sector the tech sector is dominated by young people 22 year olds 23 year olds inventing you know tech unicorns and startups and entertainment sector is completely dominated by not even millennials but gen- generation z so outside this very traditional formal power structures and governments and institutions you see young people leading change also on the streets from lebanon to iraq to chile to the climate protest um, it is young people leading the charge but unfortunately we have not been able to create similar spaces within our formal institutions for young people to lead and one of the I think one of the revelations for me in the past 2 years has been that there is a growing mistrust because of that same fact between young people and formal institutions like the governments like the UN because these institutions do not provide safe spaces 
for young people to come in and challenge bring new solutions create be innovative so they are more or less trying to distance themselves from formal official institutions as well so uh, i think there is a, a lot of work that needs to be done to bridge that gap and to make sure that young people trust the institutions but also that the institutions trust young people uh, because what we most of the time see is that usually your expertise is measured by the numbers of years of experience obviously a lot of young people do not fill into the categories if you continue the numbers of years of experience they have done something but it doesn't mean that they are less experts in the areas that they are working on or in the solutions that they are bringing to the table so even within the un that's what i really want to change and to make be able to make sure that the un as an institution actually trusts young people that it works with either it is young people in the civil society or the young people who works for our own organization as well so for an example our interns our consultants our young p staff g staff field staff do they get enough opportunities to practice leadership and groom to be leaders in the future or today many times i walk into meeting rooms and i see younger staff is also sitting in the back taking notes they are never invited to speak they are never invited to give feedback and you sometimes forcibly try to put them into the model that you were shaped as an international civil servant since the day you started but the world outside the un is changing so fast and the attitudes and the mindsets of young people are also evolving and changing in the same rapid manner so in the organization how do you also share power and how do you also make sure that you capitalize on and utilize the new ideas creativity and energy that young staff brings to the organization so youth 2030 youth strategy looks into both of these so the youth strategies first um, four areas actually are more foundational in nature looking inwards at the united nations and the five thematic priority areas are more programmatic in nature looking at how we work with young people outside the united nations but in the four foundational areas in the last couple the last two years mainly one year we've also been able to see how when there's political commitment and commitment from the leadership things can really change for an example unpaid internships in the un has is recognized as one of the biggest cases where the un actually doesn't walk the talk and the un actually sort of you know does not give opportunities to young people who cannot afford to be in new york or to be in geneva so in the past year we've seen who adopting a resolution to pay for their interns um unicef uh, unfpa undp boards are now considering also compensating their interns unfpa has introduced a fellowship through un volunteers for more younger staff to come into the organization and get these experiences many uh, heads of un agencies have started continuous dialogue with their younger staff so through young un and other Uh, agency based in networks like the tangerines in the unfpa executive directors involved with young people young staff working for their organizations on monthly or bi-monthly basis to also pick their brains on what can be done to improve the organization uh, both from a management and a programmatic perspective so these are some of the good practices i think that has resulted from youth 2030 but still there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of really trusting and 
and giving the space for young people to lead um, and to the more older leaders or to the adults to play a more supporting and facilitating and guiding role. Obviously, organizations like the UN or the biggest challenges that we face in the world today cannot be just solved by young people alone or by adults alone. It has to be done through intergenerational partnerships. And that is the sense of partnership that I think we also need in the United Nations, that senior managers and younger staff work together in partnership, um, not really looking at, um, you know, younger staff as those, you know, adults in training or, or without uh, having that mutual respect, it's going to be difficult for us to find common solutions. When we look at um, multilateralism overall and the evolution, it's always evolving, evolving all the time. And I, I think in future, it will need to evolve at a faster rate. One important dynamic is how youth, however defined, relates to the institutions that uphold multilateralism, in particular the UN. So you mentioned how this lack of mutual trust may engender a sort of um, detachment between classical multilateral institutions like the UN and, and youth. How do you gauge this? What's happening out there in, when you travel the world as youth envoy? Do you think that the youth are actually more inclined to side with the UN or go on, on a different path still to realize, for instance, the, the tenets of uh, Agenda 2030. When we talk about Agenda 2030 and we see it from 2030, at that point in time, the landscape will be different and the generation in power will have shifted already to a great degree so that so between 25 and 30, this new generation will have to step to the table and define the next agenda after 2030. So what is that you see from your privilege observation deck of being the youth envoy? More engagement, prospectively, or less engagement? I mean, it's difficult to give a generic answer because I think this also is changing and it is very different in different parts of the world, in places that I've been to, which are very vulnerable to conflict, to climate change, to disasters, um, like the refugee camps in Cox's Bazar or Jordan or the uh, IDP camps that I've been to in Iraq these young people really look to the UN as their savior. The UN is the organization that gives them their food, their water, the place to live in, the source of identification. So the most vulnerable young people in the world actually looks at the U UN as their guardian, not only for this, of course, material, um, you know, support that we give them, but also to protect and promote their human rights, to defend them, protect them against persecution and violence. Um, so for, for a lot of them, the UN gives a lot of hope. But at the same time, if you look at um, Europe or North America and the sort of the more developed part of the world, we also see how there are more and more, say, 
extremist right wing populist governments are coming into power and developing this very strong narrative against the multilateral system and withdrawing support to the multilateral system and sometimes even you know blatantly attacking the multilateral system and the un as it is so um, there's also young people who are part of these movements um who are part of these popul- populist movements who are part of these political parties who support this kind of engagement but of course this does not constitute that group of young people are like this and the other half of young people are like this the majority of young people i think believe in the same values the same principles and the same end goals that the un as an organization um is trying to bring about so that is just fair globalization that is peace and security that is human dignity that is the respect for human rights for all and both the un as an organization and this youth movement that see that we see out on the streets are headed this way but they differently have two different approaches to get there the un uses a more more soft diplomatic approach to get there by bringing all governments together through dialogue bringing partners around the table um, but the youth movement is restless because issues like climate change for for an example to us are existential if we do not solve climate change we as a generation are not going to have a planet to live in so i can also understand that frustration and that urgency that young people and youth generations expect that sometimes huge multilateral institutions like the un or the eu or the au might not be cater into in the same speed and that is why i think there has to be stronger connections and stronger strengths and also spaces within the multilateral system where these youth groups come and express themselves and call leaders to action and we saw this happen during the climate summit that secretary general convened last september there was a youth forum convened um, alongside the head of state segment and young people who were part of the youth forum actually got to attend the head of state segment and call the leaders out to say that you are just a bunch of words where is your action and this is our future at stake so that is why i think we need to rethink as we move forward and celebrate 75th anniversary of the un how do we create more spaces for not just young people but communities and constituencies that are traditionally excluded from global policy making to include them to get their voices heard and i think that's the only way that we as the un as the multilateral system can build more trust and stronger relationships and partnerships with young people and other groups who are frustrated with the lack of action and or the slow pace of action from the multilateral system and at the end of the day none of these groups can achieve it alone we need to work together and we can only work together if we trust each other and create those safe spaces for each other Right. Thank you for this last comment. I think it's very it's very important. You are the envoy of the Secretary General. So people assume our listeners assume that you work with the Secretary General very frequently. I would be interested in an anecdote of your life work life with the with the Secretary General. Well, I um remember like my first meeting with the Secretary General uh, after my appointment 
and um, we sat together and we sort of discussed about the different challenges also how do we strong work with young people not just work for young people but work really with young people in and outside of the united nations and then he told me this sentence that i carry with me every time he said i want you to misbehave he said don't be confined by the limitations and the protocol and the official nature of the united nations you have my full permission to misbehave so since that day i started wearing jeans to work <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and uh, so that has been like one of the um i think big revelations for me and also the amount of trust that he has in me to lead, lead this agenda within the organization being um you know a career politician for so many years being a head of a un agency being a prime minister uh, for him to be able to trust a 26 year old and say go out there misbehave and create the change you want to see and very recently again um now that i'm working on the implementation of the youth strategy you know the un being the un i also run into a lot of administrative logistical challenges when it comes to really mobilize mobilizing the entire UN system but also agencies are very much aligned to their way of thinking so bringing like 40 different UN agencies working on youth together is it is a cumbersome task so i was talking to the secretary general about some of the challenges that i'm experiencing and then he told me um, do what you have to do and you can apologize later um so this kind of sort of motivation and the space that is uh, given and provided to me by the secretary general has been something that is really like um priced me but also at the same time i think provides a really good um story as to how when leaders are committed and when they have the real desire to create change the kind of spaces they can create within organizations as well jayatma thank you so much for being with us on the next page thank you very much mm-hmm.